Welcome to the fourth episode of the Nineteen Podcast. Today we are changing gears a little bit and talking about a prevalent and important issue in terms of medical malpractice litigation. In today's episode, we're talking to Brandon D. Domenico, who is a medical malpractice lawyer here at our office and who has had many occasion to deal with cases involving hospital negligence in the use of guidelines, policies, and other written documents housed by the hospital and relevant to the standard of care issues in the litigation. So as an example, in cases involving negligence in the emergency room, policies, guidelines, and other written documents or protocols housed by the hospital are often quite relevant. They may offer some guidance as to frequency of vital checks. They may include important information about the availability of imaging and when imaging should be done. There's just tons of information and important directives that are included in those types of documents. And many times there is quite a lot of contention over the use and implications of those documents. I myself have dealt with quite a few cases in which my argument was that the policy was actually quite clear as to what the standard of care reasonably would have been expected. And the hospital defendant sort of backed up my claim or my assertion, which is that the policy is directly relevant on point. The particular patient who ended up becoming harmed by negligence would have fallen under said policy and comes along the defendant, the physician defendant, who argues that that policy either didn't apply to them in their care of the patient or that they simply didn't know about it. There was no training about the policy. The policy just sort of housed in a book at the front of the administration desk and really wasn't a part of their daily practice. From the perspective of consumers of healthcare in this province, that is something that should definitely concern us. The hospital and the administration behind the hospital has obviously gone through the effort and the time to ensure that certain important areas of care in the hospital setting are codified, that there are ways to deal with certain clinical situations and there are certain protocols that should be followed. And so for a healthcare practitioner to come along and say that they either didn't know about the policy or that they didn't feel their care was governed by that policy should be something that is concerning to us. As a medical malpractice lawyer, this issue and this problem in litigation has come up enough times that it's something that we talk about a lot here in our offices, but it's also something that just plays out so differently depending on the type of case. So I, for example, have dealt with a few different cases with respect to care provided to newborns in a pediatric setting. And the real discrepancies and just differences in the way that guidelines and policies are talked about in those units is really quite concerning to me. Some nurses really swear by them. So for example, oxytocin protocol. Oxytocin protocol has been really quite carefully and for good reason monitored and regulated because injuries caused Pitocin are very severe, can be very severe. And so the policies that govern the administration of Pitocin are appropriately quite tightly monitored and adhered to. In another setting, for example, the context of checking for low blood sugar in a newborn, those policies are widely different depending on the unit in the 
the hospital, between hospitals, and the way that those kinds of issues have been dealt with just sort of seem like the hospital has some legal obligation to ensure that these types of things are codified, but really no expectation that they'll be followed because, and in some ways it's correct that clinical context will differ and the application of any said policy will be different depending on the clinical context. But the overall spirit or underlying spirit of the policy really is based on something. You know, most policies and guidelines are peer reviewed. They come to be because of the consensus of a committee and they often cite academic articles, peer reviewed articles as to what those guidelines are and why, you know, they're important to be followed. And so for some policies to be considered just suggestions and then others to be considered as very importantly adhered to is really a level of discrepancy in the healthcare system that needs to be rectified. And we as medical malpractice lawyers really need to consider how we're dealing with that issue. Brandon, we've been talking a lot about negligence in a hospital context. And one of the things that we've had a lot of experience with at our firm, and I know in your practice, you've had a lot of experience with is sort of the interplay of guidelines, policies, sort of internal standards or documents that we would think as medical malpractice lawyers, and I think anybody sort of listening will think that have they have some authority in terms of what is expected in terms of a healthcare professional's conduct in what they're supposed to do in any given situation. What we've experienced, certainly I've had in my practice, is a pretty vigorous defense from the CMPA and, of course, other institutional defense that those documents are not authoritative, that they're not actually to practice or what informs the standard of care in any given situation. So I know you in this conversation, and that's something that's quite interesting to us because because really at the end of the day, the question is, then why do they exist? So do you want to give us your experience on how you've handled that defense and just generally your experience working on those types of cases? Yeah, my experience mirrors yours in terms of how they've approached cases where there are sort of plans from the hospital that would be on the subject matter that the litigation is about. And yeah, they take the position that that doesn't form the standard of care, which I think is rather troubling to some degree. Hospitals have a legal obligation to have policies and procedures in place. And those policies and procedures, if you, you know, ask generally sort of, I guess for lack of a better word, what the practice is or what the sort of reasonable healthcare provider ought to be doing in certain very specific circumstances. So in a sense, in my view, at least kind of contradicts the hospital's legal obligation to have these policies in the first place. Yeah. And I wonder how much of it comes down to something that we're going to talk about later in this podcast series. But this idea that when we do sue in a healthcare context, we are essentially two different lawsuits. There's a lawsuit against the physicians who are separately represented and have a separate defense typically. And then there's kind of the separate allegation against the hospital and their employees, which include nurses. And so you have this this bifurcated system. Now, I don't want to give the impression to anybody that there's two different um, actions. It's one action, but in effect, in practicality, we've, we've talked a lot about amongst ourselves that this is a really weird way to have to prove negligence when negligence often happens in a collaborative and, and 
team-based setting. And so I wonder if this dichotomy of the guidelines are important because the hospital says they are, but nobody actually really needs to listen to them is a byproduct or I don't know how to really unscramble that egg, but if it has something to do with the way that we talk about fault, that it's sort of rife with the opportunity to point fingers at each other between the hospital and the doctors and the doctors and the nurse. So I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I've had quite a few files now where there's a hospital defendants and then there's the physician defendants. Typically, they're represented by so hospital nurses will be represented by one lawyer, one law firm. All the physicians will be represented by one lawyer, one law firm. And there's quite often a discrepancy between the understanding of the hospital defendants' understanding of the policies and procedures that are at play and the understanding of the policies and procedures of defendants that are at play. A few files as well where the physician either didn't understand a certain policy or didn't even know it existed, which I think just speaks to that sort of regimented system. Yeah. Practically speaking, in your practice, how do you deal with these policies? I know I can speak for myself. My practice is typically to get them up front. I make a FOIP request, freedom of information request, and typically get the index from the hospital at the beginning of the case. And then depending on how specific the index is, I will request individual policies. And then as the litigation continues, I will, of course, disclose those as part of my affidavit of documents. And then at discovery, I would bring them with me and ask questions of all parties, not just of the hospital defendants, but of all parties, get their sense of whether or not, as you say, they were familiar at all with the policy, what they interpreted the policy to mean, how the policy was intended to be in effect. And then this whole idea of that we've alluded to, you know, that plays its course. And the doctors said they, as you say, didn't need to know that or didn't we didn't expect that they would need to know them and the hospital usually says no no these were in place for x reason so i wonder does that mirror kind of the way that you use them is there anything else strategically that you can share with our listeners yeah particularly when i'm examining the a representative for the hospitals as opposed to the actual nurses involved but a hospital rep who should be able to speak to what the policy entails is I'll go through that policy in quite detail with them to get an understanding on behalf of the hospital, what the hospital's position of their own policy, what it means and where it applies and when, et cetera. And then I'll, I'll go through where it's quite clear there's things happened in the care provided to the client that were in conflict with the policy or showing the policy wasn't followed. I'll take that to them and get them to confirm that based on their understanding of the policy, whether or not it was followed in that circumstance. And sometimes I objected to, and they, they're, they're typically, uh, you're, I'm asking for a standard of care opinion, that's for an expert. And each time I make it abundantly clear, like, no, no, um, this isn't a standard of care opinion. This is a policy of the hospital. You brought a representative of that hospital and asking them if their policy was followed. Our argument is that informs the standard of care, but I'm not asking a standard of care opinion. And, you know, sometimes hitting their refusal, which I think is inappropriate. The hospital rep, I think, is an important witness in that regard in terms of going through the policies, putting to them whether it was followed in, in the circumstances. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. Can you, obviously, preserving all anonymity, can you give us an example of a case in which the policy issue you know, came to play a central role in your liability argument and sort of how you dealt with that? I recently did a discovery where we had a policy and based on my read of the policy, at least around the time when the physician assessed the patient, the physician should have repeated vital signs that were done initially on admission to the hospital and they weren't done. And when I examined both the 
witness for the hospital and the physician defendant, there was genuinely a lack of understanding of whether or not the physician was required to do further signs or whether a nurse should have came and done them at that time. By the end of the discovery, there still wasn't a consensus amongst the parties, which is obviously, you know, quite alarming that a doctor and a representative of the hospital that the doctor was practicing in couldn't come to a consensus on hires them to do. And that's just one. Mm-hmm. There's, I've had a few others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, at the end of the day, this conversation is intellectually interesting one, but also I think has a pretty significant impact on certain cases, right? Like certain cases really do or could, in terms of liability theory, begin and end in terms of the interpretation of the of the policy or the guidelines. I think it's one of those areas in our practice, the way that the law has developed, it's underrated, right? Like the use of the policy or the use of the guideline is a bit underrated. Sometimes it's so on the nose that it really should be the central focus of the, of the litigation. Yeah. And just to jump in, sorry to cut you off, but as a matter of law, not only are the hospitals required to have these policies in the first place, the laws evolve such that the hospitals are required to take the wording would be reasonable steps to ensure that these policies are followed. And so, I mean, the extent that you go to a discovery on a case and doctors are either unaware of the policies or have a fundamental misunderstanding of what they require, well, that involves your case from a physician negligence case to some pretty serious concerns. <laughs> 